It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist L. Joy Williams. And I, you know, I'm happy that you made it to class this morning. We're going to have little policy wonk conversation, but I promise you the people that I'm going to bring to the, the person I'm going to bring to the front of the class. And we're gonna have a good discussion about this. And I promise you, it won't be like Charlie Brown's teacher. So buckle in, we're gonna have a great conversation about paid leave. And I wanted to have this conversation. I think the president mentioned this during his State of the Union this week asking Congress to finish the job, to get the job done on paid family leave on the federal level. Certainly a number of states across the country have paid leave, but there are a number of workers and people that are left out of that conversation. And I wanted to have the conversation also because I don't know if you are on social media, if you're on Reddit or anything of that nature, and you may have come across a tweet, or maybe you're on Reddit and you saw this. It was a post from an, a CEO asking his or her employees that they have a long-term employee of 17 years in their dietary department who's been in the hospital for several months, and she has exhausted all of her PTO days. And the, the, the letter was posted and they were asking employees to donate their PTO, their off time to this employee of 17 years. This is the president and CEO of this company asking employees to sacrifice and give up their days rather than the president and CEO doing something to, you know, maybe help this person out himself or herself. I was very quite, I was quite perplexed by, by this. And I remember my own experiences when I had my first miscarriage, I was working for the city of New York and, you know, there were a number of people who were trying to donate time so that I had time to heal so I wouldn't have to come back immediately. And New York City had stopped that process at that time. And, you know, I was young. I didn't know about paid leave, that I wasn't going to get paid while I was healing and had to make the decision to come back really quickly. And as I've lived my life, there have been times, whether it's fostering children, having to take care of my grandmother, where you have to think about, well, if I take time off and I need to take time off to care for this family member, to care for my own family, to care for myself. But in that calculation is how am I going to pay my bills? during that time that I need to take off. So we're going to have a conversation about paid family leave. And I'm bringing someone to the front of the class who is going to have this conversation with us. So joining us is Josephine Calapeni, who's a national leader, social worker, organizer, and vocal advocate for justice and liberation for Black and Indigenous people, immigrants, and people of color in general. She's currently the executive director of Family Values at Work which is a network of grassroots organizers and coalitions that work toward economic, racial, and gender justice. Welcome to the front of the Sunday Civics class, Josephine. Hey. Hey, Eljoy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this honor to be able to talk to you, to be able to talk about what our Black workers and what Black women and Black families are dealing with and talk about paid leave. And girlfriend, congratulations on the NAACP <laughs> nomination. Thank you, sis. <laughs> okay, so, you know, there's not many folks that I meet that have the name Josephine. I actually love the name because all I can think about is there's a scene in the Josephine Baker movie, Josephine, Josephine. <laughs> so I'm going to stop myself from saying that throughout this whole conversation. Josephine, Josephine. Okay, anyway. <laughs> 
<laughs> so we're before we get into the paid leave conversation and your reaction to that letter that was posted, because I'm sure you have comments as well. I want to start where we ask every guest to start. And if you can share the story of your first civic action. I loved this question. I've been doing organizing work for a long time, for over 20 years. I know how important it is to be civically engaged and to vote. But as an immigrant myself, I was not able to vote until last year. So after years and such a long application process, I became a citizen last year and I got sworn in as a citizen on November 8th. Like, hello, it just seemed like the perfect moment that on National Voting Day, November 8th is when I got sworn in in the morning in Baltimore at the immigration office. And thank God for Maryland. Maryland has same-day voter registration. Check and see if your state has same-day voter registration. But I got to be sworn in as a citizen. I got to tell everybody in the room that Maryland had same-day voter registration, that they should register to vote. I helped a few people look up their polling places before running out of there, coming home, changing, and walking up the street, walking into my polling place, and registering to vote on the spot, and casting my first vote in this country after having been here since 1989. And I was I was walking in there strong, you know, I had my shoulders pulled back. And when I tell you with each step I took closer to walking into the polling place, I just became so overwhelmed with emotion that by the time I was walking into the bowling and voting room, I was in tears and the poll workers were like, are you okay? What's going on? And I just had to explain to them my whole situation. And, that, and the thing that I will never forget is casting that first vote and realizing that I'm casting a vote not just for myself, but for my family members who still can't vote in this country, but are living in this country and are impacted by the decisions that policymakers are making every day. And that I'm voting for a whole community of people who live here and can't vote. And that just really overwhelmed me. And it's a moment, it's a feeling, it's a responsibility and a commission that I will never forget. Josephine, Josephine, how amazing is that, that you become a citizen and then like, it was like, I'm a, first of all, that you had a wardrobe change. I love that. (laughs) It was like, so I'm going to wear this to become a citizen and then I'm going to wear this to go vote. Like the whole wardrobe change. I'm I'm like, did you have drinks afterwards? And was that an outfit change as well? Listen, I had red, white, and blue drinks afterwards. We had a whole theme for that afternoon. <laughs> I absolutely love it. And to do that in Maryland, where you do have same-day voter registration, where you're able to do that immediately and get engaged is an absolute her first civic engagement or first civic action. I, I absolutely love that. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more on Sunday Civics. Who is the T-Shop? I will let you know. Who is the so, I, you know, I want to get to the conversation we have here because, you know, paid family leave, there are, it doesn't matter if you're a Republican, independent, socialist, you know, anarchist, whatever, you know, political affiliation yeah. you subscribe to, you know, this seems like a no-brainer. And, you know, I shared at the beginning this letter that I thought was so atrocious for a president and CEO of a company to not gather his HR or her HR together and say, what can we do for this employee who has 17 years here at our institution And what can we do to continue them? But basically to go back to the employees themselves who do not own the company to ask them to sacrifice. There are so many metaphors that I can bring up that this this can be applied to. But wanted to hear your perspective on this. I am thinking about this and one, how absurd it is that we are in one of the wealthiest country in this world and that we do not do right by workers. Workers keep this economy going. We talk about businesses as if it's just the brick and mortar and not the people that actually work there. So this is such a horrifying experience and just the thought that we treat workers and even some of our essential workers in this way is terrible. 
as much as we would like to predict how life goes, you don't know when you're going to get sick. You don't know when someone you love is going to need you to show up for them. And you don't know how long that's going to require of you. So the fact that this happens and it happens over and over and over again, the idea that to take care of a worker would require taking leave from someone else who cannot predict when they might need their PTO in order to cover a worker who they need is really disgusting of our worker economy. And furthermore, employ while I think the government has a lot to do, state and federal government who need to pass meaningful policies, employers can't just throw their hands up. I'm an employer. I'm the executive director of my organization. And I am can be a front runner in how to make a workplace equitable for my workers to ask other employees to donate their pay time off when you can change policies, when you can push HR, when you can look into meaningful benefits for employers, or when you could just wave your hand and say, actually, take all the time you need. We will figure out how to pay you. We will figure out how to ensure that you have a paycheck so that you are not financially destabilized. Employers can do that. Bosses can do that. Places of business can do that and should do that. We should be the front runners and setting models that work for workers and not just throw our hands up and require folks to donate their own time, their own money. If I see one more GoFundMe page to take care of an employee by asking their fellow colleagues to chip into a GoFundMe, we just have to do better. Yeah, so I want I want to go back for a second because as I mentioned in the upfront, the president during his State of the Union speech did talk about pay family leave. He talks about childcare. He talked about a number of things that are necessary to support workers in this economy. And if you look at what families are spending majority of their money on, it is a lot of this care, right? Care for their children, care for themselves in terms of medical care, things of that nature. And I want to step back and talk about the status of paid family leave because there was a recent anniversary of what is called FMLA. And I'll have you talk about the state of paid leave, both on the federal level and on the state level, because, again, we live in a, you know, states rights situation, right? So states can implement something in the federal government. Obviously, the president is talking about what the federal government can do. But, you know, I want to set the stage in terms of what the status of paid leave is in general. Yeah, Eljoy, let me start with a little bit of historical context. When we talk about the condition of work and workers in this country, we are talking about a situation that's deeply rooted and goes all the way back to the time of slavery where the conditions of work, particularly the conditions of Black for Black workers, were always inequitable. And so we are trying to undo and dismantle what we define as work, what we value as work, and what we think workers deserve. And so when, you know, back in the times of slavery, when a white slave master could take advantage of low-wage and under paid unpaid workers in order to build this economy, refuse them benefits. That's the legacy that we're talking about. We're coming from that. And we are dealing with the residual impact of that legacy. And so I think about paid family and medical leave. I think about FMLA. This is a women's rights issue, an economic issue, a community issue, a family issue. And there has been a movement around workers' rights for decades. And while we've always known that what people need is paid family and medical leave, we have to really be strategic about the legislation and policies that we move that will improve the lives of people. So we just celebrated the 30th anniversary of the Family Medical Leave Act. And it's important to get the facts straight on this. FMLA is a benefit that all workers get if you qualify for it. You get up to 12 weeks of leave for, and it protects your job, which means that you can take leave for up to 12 weeks for different reasons, not all reasons, but for a lot of different reasons. And you, it protects your job so you know you have a job to come back to. What it isn't is it's not paid leave. 
So it means that while you're utilizing the Family Medical Leave Act, you are not being paid in that time that you're taking off. And so while we celebrate the notion that there is some leave that protects workers when they need to be out of work and secures their job, the reality is also that it's not paid. And I used FMLA in about 2014 when recovery from a surgery took longer than expected, took longer than the time that I had off. And while I took a financial hit by not receiving a paycheck, I didn't have to worry about job hunting while I was out. And I that time frame of not receiving a paycheck wasn't longer because I I didn't lose my job. I had a job to come back to. So it was helpful to me in that way, but I took a financial hit by not getting paid. And so fast forward 30 years, we are 30 years out from FMLA and the conditions of a federal paid leave program have not changed much. There's lots more public discourse and conversation about the need for workers and paid leave, but we are, and we are growing the power to win it at the federal level. But we're not there yet. And it is so important that the president mentioned it, that there's been lots of activity because of FMLA's 30th anniversary, and that people are acknowledging that FMLA took us far, but we have more work to do and we need to pass a national guaranteed paid leave program. The good thing is that states aren't waiting on the federal government to do it. We never know what the federal government is going to do. As much advocacy work as we can do, as much civic engagement work as we can do, states know that workers need paid family and medical leave. It is a retention strategy. It's a recruitment strategy. And we know that to stabilize the economy, people shouldn't have to choose between caring for themselves or or a paycheck. They shouldn't have to choose whether or not to show up for a family member or ensure that they have enough in their paycheck to make rent. Those are not real choices that families are making. So states like Delaware and California and Minnesota and New York and other states are making the move to pass state paid leave. In many ways, this is great because of the because workers are being covered and we're learning what works and what doesn't work. We get to take the information that states are learning and let our members of Congress know that we know 12 12 weeks is the minimum threshold in order for workers to actually utilize paid leave. We know that the reimbursement rate in the paycheck, what people get repaid for their paycheck, has to be high enough for people to be able to actually afford to utilize the time off. So we're learning a lot by states making this progress. And the reality is there's some states that will never pass a state paid leave policy. That's why the federal government has to pass state, has to pass a federal paid leave program to cover the folks that will never have it in their state and to really set a foundational standard for what paid leave should be across all states. This is really, really important. Eljoy, you shared your story. I think about the times my mom was the primary caregiver for my dad, and she was sneaking away at lunch to make sure that he was okay because she was trying to preserve as much of her pay time off as she could because we couldn't anticipate what his needs would be. I think about the times that I had surgery and my friends were rotating their time at work to be able to show up for me to make sure that I was okay. And I think about all of the times and the shared value across political party, across income, across race. It is a shared value that we show up for each other, that we show up for our families and that we take care of ourselves and our communities. And paid family medical leave allows us to do that. It's not a political issue when we're talking about it in our homes. It shouldn't be a political issue in our national discourse. And it should be the thing that our federal government does. You know, Josephine, you said. I I think that's a perfect description. And I want to add some additional context, some additional context and questions, right? So as you mentioned, you're an employer, run a small business myself, right? And I think about the cost of if I bring people on as full-time employees, what benefits can I afford based upon the revenue that we're generating? And so for a lot of people, as you mentioned, they don't qualify 
for FMLA or even on the federal level or on different state programs. And that could be partly because you don't work enough hours. I'm thinking immediately sometimes of school workers, right, who may not qualify based upon the number of hours they work because they only work part of the year, right? And I have to keep in context, like in New York City, if you are a DOE employee, you work for, you know, the DOE, particularly teachers, you're paid all through the year, right? For other places and other states, that's not the case. You work the school year and then like you ain't got no job, like during, you know, (laughs) when, when there's no school. Right. So you may never reach the actual hours if you're a bus driver, if you're, you know, work in the kitchen or things of that nature. So you don't actually get to meet the qualifications to be able to take that time. This is the reason why you need a federal program because of that. Yep. The other thing is that it can be significantly costly for smaller businesses, yeah. right, to continue to keep somebody on payroll that is not assisting, you know, that can't be there to help. And I can't afford to, you know, pay them even if it's half of the, you know, amount or a quarter of the amount and bring someone on to actually do the work, right? Just yep. thinking of catering businesses that are based on, like, you need someone there. Right? Yes. <laughs> like you, yes. can't, you know, you can't do that, right? We're not talking about, like, Google, you know, or sort of <laughs> l- large institutions like that. I'm talking about the diner, like, yep. right? Like, the diner up the street needs somebody to help slip, you know, make them eggs, right? Yes. <laughs> in, yes. in that space. And so that's the importance of having a federal program that can, you know, take on that responsibility. So the burden is not on the smaller employers. But I do feel that the larger institutions, the larger employees, employers are basically you, those smaller employers as an excuse, right? Getting them all riled up and saying, yeah, I can't afford this. Meanwhile, you larger institutions can. Can you talk a bit from the employer standpoint? You know, what are some of the benefits and struggles in dealing with You want to be able to give your employees, you know, the time you want to be able, you know, for let them help with their grandmother to take all of the time that they need. But I can't afford it. Yeah. Alger, that's such a brilliant point. I mean, it's worth noting that when we talk about small businesses that keep this country's economy running, it is the small moms and pop shops. So when we have members of Congress that want to cater to the Googles under the name of small businesses or even businesses, that's actually not who is hiring Black workers, who is starting businesses that our communities need, and who we think of and who partners like Main Street Alliance thinks of as small businesses. And because of you know, qualification requirements for FMLA, over 43% of Black workers are not covered by the FMLA because they work for a small employer or they're not, like you said, they're not working enough hours, they're on contract, whatever the reason may be. I even think of my sister who is a travel nurse and because she's a travel nurse and is on contract, she wouldn't qualify for FMLA. And so the thing that we hear from small businesses all the time, and I'm talking about real small businesses, knocking on business doors and talking to them really about what it is are you concerned about, what it is that you need. And small business owners tell us all the time that they want to be able to provide benefits for their employees, not just because it's the right thing to do, not just because they themselves are family-owned businesses, but because they know that it, good benefits recruit and retain good workers. And they tell us all the time, it's not that they want a free pass. We're giving free passes to some of the largest, most profitable businesses in this country. Our small business owners are saying, I don't want a free pass. I just need some help to be able to do what it is that I can do for my employees while maintaining the business that feeds my family. And so the role of state and federal policies is to think about ways that support small businesses, subsidizes some of the benefits that they're employing, that they're offering their employees, like paid family and medical leave, can offer subsidies to make it possible for small business owners to provide these sorts of benefits. It's also worth noting that the fastest population growth of small business owners is people of color and Black women. So when we talk about this as a racial and gender justice issue, 
And when we name small businesses, we have to keep this at the forefront. These are our families. These are our sisters, our girlfriends. And these are the folks that are also going to continue to really grow our economy and they're spending in our communities. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction to make because people, you know, we throw around the small business title and on a federal level, the small businesses, you know, can make up to (laughs) have a certain amount of revenue. And that's not what you're thinking about when you think about small businesses and also the business industry, the lobbyists. Again, they're they're framing things in in a way that makes you think you know, of the small jewelry strap on Fulton Street, right? Like yes. it makes you think of those places and not that you're thinking about larger manufacturing. You're not thinking about those kinds of, you know, multi-million dollar businesses that have way many more employees, right? And that's something I think we need to be educated about, or at least I want to educate our audience about that when people are using phrases like small business or affordable housing or like sort of these generic terms that are used, I think, deliberately to evoke those kinds of institutions and memories to us, that we have to stop and ask the question, what businesses are you talking about? Exactly. Exactly. And making sure that they have representation at the table. Because let me tell you, in trying to work with small businesses here, you know, in Brooklyn, I was asking a question about something that some policy that would go into effect that would affect smaller businesses. And I had a conversation with them and they're like, first of all, they invite us to the meeting, but it's in the midday and I'm running my business. I can't even go. I, so I can't even go to the meeting. Yep. Right. That's different than you being able to send your president and CEO. Your th- like that. That's different. Like if I'm running a jewelry shop, if I'm running a diner, if I'm running a bookstore, if I'm running that, I'm actually running my business. My business and so exactly. to be able to get my input, you got to come in my shop. You got to come to me. Come to me and engage me. Is some of the same thing we say about education and children. Right. Yep. For a number of parents, some it will work at, you know, for in the evening, some it may not. Right. Yep. So, you know, the other thing is that they are not brought to the table to have the conversation and they are being spoken about. Yeah. And two, rather than being included in the conversation. That's right. And, you know, ultimately part of the work that we do ensures that we're building with and not for, because that's really important that we're bringing the voices of the most impacted into the conversation. But not just the conversation, but into the decision making. You you can't just have a conversation with people and then make the decision after they've left the room. That's not how this works. And that's why we know the, the what paid leave has to be in order for it to work, because we're talking to folks who would be directly impacted by it. They are shaping the policies. They are telling us that four weeks isn't enough and 12 weeks is barely enough. And so we are shaping these based on our own lived experiences and what people are actually saying that they need and what we're learning. And Eljoy, it's a good reminder too, we talk about small businesses in only the terms of the work that they do and the people they employ. But small business owners themselves are in the same exact situations. Small business owners themselves don't have these benefits, don't have retirement benefits. They don't have paid leave benefits themselves. I was working with a supplier to put together New Year's gift packages for my staff and she got sick. Her getting sick meant none of the work. She was pushing herself through illness to try to meet orders over the holiday break because she couldn't afford to take pay time off. She couldn't and she was worried about losing business. So we have to think about the the sustainability of small businesses who are the backbone of our economy if we're not even so able to support the business owners themselves. So it's more than just the employees, it's also the employer. I think that, I mean, as a self-employed person, <laughs> I think that amazing because, you know, even when my husband and I were talking about adding children, you know, to our family, and I said, okay, if I go out of commission, it, you know, something happens, like what recourse do I have yeah. as a business owner, yeah. as, you know, the self-employed person for us, like for us to address that loss in income? 
like what insurance, like, you know, being able to even think about like, who do I even go to? Where's the, the, the source even for yeah. me to find out what my options are, yeah. right? And, and being able to do that. And, you know, there are resources on the state level, but again, this took approach in terms of the federal government. This is why I pay, this is why we're supposed to be paying taxes and, you know, why we have a federal government is like, it's opting <laughs> in for you to provide services and resources to all of us in a way that is more equitable. And because we can do this all together, it'll yes. be less expensive. It will be more impactful, right? Yes. So that's why having it on a federal level um, has a greater impact, not just for the workers, but as you mentioned, for the business owners and stabilizing the economy and institutions as well. Right. Just to go back to this president and CEO for a minute, because I hope somebody did something to re like, sir, ma'am, they, man. whatever your man. pronouns, I, I need you mm -mm. to come to the mm -mm. table and have this conversation because, you know, could have HR policies that say, I'm sorry, you've exhausted this. But to, again, like you mentioned, be able to come to the table and say, what can we do besides yeah. going to the employees? Like, what it, what can we do? What flexibility do we have? And, you know, yeah. maybe, you know, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe that conversation happened and this was the result. Yeah. But, you know, we have to have <laughs> a, a, a better system in terms of care. You know, right. I wanted to get your your assessment. Obviously, the president gave a State of the Union speech earlier this week. You know, what your assessment is in terms of family values at work. <laughs> what was some of the things that was in that speech that Congress is mulling over that would have an impact on families, given our economic status as it is right now? Yeah, I have to say that, you know, I there was so much good in the State of the Union, and there were some things that kind of made me raise my eyebrow and cringe a little bit, right? Like, I just want to be upfront and honest about that. I was so excited to hear about paid family and medical leave and a recommitment to paid family and medical leave by the president. Last year, our network organized ourselves into the Build Back Better moment because we thought that was such a moment to get this done. And we were all devastated to not see it come across the finish line through the Build Back Better, through the Build Back Better legislation. So and then we felt a silence from the White House, from this administration on paid family and medical leave. It didn't stop us from continuing to knock on their doors and to knock on their doors loud and hard to make sure that they were hearing us. So it's amazing to see this issue bubble back as one of the top domestic policy issues. So I was excited to hear paid family and medical leave being mentioned because that impacts us, that impacts me and my family. We know that people are really struggling with child care costs. One of the primary reasons people need paid family and medical leave is to take care of children and people need to be able to afford child care costs. And so to hear the president talk about a commitment to passing legislation around affordable child care, incredibly important. A commitment to renew the child tax credit. Again, it decreased poverty across communities of color and families of color. So to re-up and expand the child care tax credit is huge. We also heard things in there about affordable housing, about a right to vote and protecting the right to vote, and really about rebuilding this economy in a way that creates jobs and creates quality jobs. And we also heard about health care, especially home care, domestic workers and care workers, which all keep the care economy running and is really, really important. The fact of the matter is that Everyone is going to either need care at some point or receive care at some point. And many of us can't afford to not work. So the likelihood that we will need care or need to give care is going to intersect with the need to work. And so to really see these issues in conversation in such a public speech, such a public profile speech is really important. You know, I... I'm a little concerned and growingly concerned. The president recommitted to not taxing anyone whose incomes is less than $400,000 worth of annual income. And while I think that's important, we have to think about ways to pay for these policies. 
there are ways to pay for paid family and medical leave that cannot tax folks that are $400,000 or less of income. But we have to be bold and courageous enough then to actually enact those pay-fors as part of the way we pay for these policies and not reburden folks who are already struggling. But we can high-income earners. We can tax the wealthy. We can tax large profitable businesses we can recapture business fees from employers that are not from large employers that are violating workers rights all of those can pay for the social safety net that we need to rebuild and refortify we can do this there are many ways to pay for this so i am always concerned to hear a commitment to the social policies that we need without a commitment to also pay for them in an equitable way, because we lose when the conversation starts to go across the aisle in in conversations around how do we pay for this. The reality is we can pay for this in the wealthiest country in the world. Folks are willing to pay for it in many different ways. And even those folks that aren't willing to pay for it doesn't mean they shouldn't. This is the right thing to do. We'll be right back with more on Sunday Civics. How can it be? So the other thing that the president mentioned in the State of the Union was talking about the rights of workers to organize, to have representation by a union. Would love to hear your assessment about the status of workers all across the country who are either trying to form new unions in different spaces or are striking or challenging contracts in renegotiating their terms in this current time. Yes. So I think every worker should have the right to organize and the right to unionize. We know that this country's foundation of worker benefits and worker protection came through unions and unions remain a strong infrastructure for protecting workers and for providing workers with strong benefits. Union models are the same as organizing and power building models. We know that when we can group together, we can win more and we can negotiate more and better for ourselves. So we need to continue to support unions, support to push for the right to unionize, the right, the right to form unions at, on jobs and the right to negotiate worker benefits. However, we also have to acknowledge that there is a portion of this country that will never be able to unionize that for many different reasons, because they're small employers, because of the communities they live in, because of the politics of the communities they live in, will never be able to join a union. So we need to have parallel tracks that allow worker protections and worker benefits even outside of unions. The other thing that I'll just say is at some point in this country, we have to talk about how to disconnect benefits from work. As long as. Okay, wait, 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 wait. I got the pause right there. You're saying that I should not have to have a job at a particular job, that I should have benefits no matter where I go to work? This is insane. This is not possible, Josephine. You're just making up random ass stories. You, it can't possibly be where I can have health insurance no matter what job I go to. How will jobs compete for workers? How will employers compete for workers if they are not able to ask for the best benefits package ever? What is happening? Yes. First of all, as long as we connect benefits to work, we're going to continue to recreate inequitable systems. The system of work in this country is based on racism and sexism and fear and inequitable wages. And as long as we continue to connect benefits to work, we're going to sort of replicate. We're going to do the best that we can, of course. Movement and social justice work is going to do the best that we can within that infrastructure. But ultimately, we have to disconnect this and we can your benefit, your healthcare benefits shouldn't be connected to work because then what happens when you're not working? I love the universal basic income movement because it really disconnects work from benefits. Your pay, you shouldn't just solely have pay leave and workers' rights benefits just because you're connected to a specific employer. It's actually really limiting if we think about it. If there's one thing we learned from the pandemic, it's that we can redefine work and redefine what workers 
can do, should do, and should have access to. We shouldn't have to connect benefits and work. It, it, it just doesn't. It just doesn't work the way we think it does. And it's not a retention strategy. People get locked into jobs that they want to move on from, but they're just there for the benefits. Come on, we can do better than that. Also, I, I do like this discussion about redefining what work is. You know, I actually learned this from my husband. I remember having a conversation with him. We were talking about, you know, fast food workers. And I was like, well, because of the economy, you have like adults working at these places and it should be like kids and teen, whatever. And he was like, why? I was like, well, no, that's just like the trend. And he was like, no, but why? Like, why do you say that? Why do you say that those jobs are only for certain people that other yeah. people should be moving into? But he was like, work is work. So if somebody is fulfilled and are able to, you know, cover themselves and their families and work at McDonald's, like we shouldn't shame them. We shouldn't, you know, say that they need to be in a more adult job. That's just where they are. Like, that's what, yeah. and I was like, oh, Okay, husband, right? Like, with the, like, the okay. Right? I was like, I thought I was doing something. He was like, stop me in classes. And I was like, uh-oh. Uh, right? So, uh, that's, that's exactly, I mean, if we think about the history of work and these sort of classifications of work, it really comes from undervaluing care and caregiving work because it was traditionally done by enslaved women. And so then you start this sort of classification of what work is valuable and what work is not valuable, what work is worth benefits and equitable pay and what's not. And of course, the work that's dominated by white men is almost always seen as the most beneficial, most valuable work. But the work of, you know, picking up our garbage and making sure our sanitation systems are working in this country to keep us healthy and to keep us whole, or the work of caring for our aging parents or our children. Some of our most valued treasures in this country is seen as less valuable because it's traditionally seen as women's work and Black women's work. And so we devalue it. And we ourselves have so much unlearning to do because there was definitely a point in time where I was fearful about making the case for my own value, but it's because we're in this environment that teaches us first that there is this level that's more valuable than other levels. And until we get there, we're not as valuable. And as we unlearn that, we will build the power to demand the things that we need, demand the things that our families want and need, and we'll create more spaciousness for people to do fulfilling work. I just... That's what I want for everybody. I want fulfilling work for everybody. I want family sustaining wages for everybody. And I want families to be able to be there for each other when they need to be or when they want to be. Absolutely. And not have to make the choice in that. Josephine, Josephine, <laughs> thank you so very much for taking the time this morning to join us. I really appreciate it. And would love to have you back to discuss more issues in a round table with others. You know, I'm just thinking, I was like, oh, we just have Josephine and an economist and, you know, a, a lobbyist and let's like, let's do it out on Sunday I, Civic. So I, I, I appreciate it. I, I am I grateful for the it. invitation and I would love, I get a little saucy when I'm in conversation with other folks. So, you know, oh, no. know what you're getting, but I am, I am down for all of it. I am so grateful for the work that you're doing because I know we're not having public conversations where we're reaching our folks and really educating our folks and having honest and transparent conversations. Change starts there. The more information we have that is trustworthy, accurate information, the more we're going to change our lives and our environments for all of us. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for listening this Sunday. And I appreciate each and every one of you who took the time to vote for Sunday Civics in the NAACP Image Awards for the Outstanding News and Information category. I am hoping, we are hoping, we are praying that we bring the win home. This is our second time being nominated. We will be back in L.A. And on February 25th for the live show to celebrate those who are often overlooked by the mainstream. 
So all of your favorite shows, your favorite movies, your favorite actors, your favorite podcast hosts or favorite social media or news source. I think Roland is also nominated for what he is bringing each and every single day. So I am, you know, encouraging all of you taking this time to not only watch the NAACP Image Awards. It'll be on BT. It'll also be on CBS. So it'll be on network news. But so often we spend a lot of time talking about how other people or other communities are not valuing the work that we are doing in our communities. And when we have spaces where we can celebrate our own, you know, we need to invest in those organizations and institutions. And it's not just for award shows. I'm talking about the institutions in your own communities as well. Think about the community-based organizations or nonprofits that exist in your community that are doing things on a shoestring budget with a handful of volunteers, how much more they can do, how much work that they can do, goodwill that they can do if they got more talented people like yourself to volunteer, even if it's just three or four hours here or there or if they got more investment from the community that they serve. Now, I'm not saying that you don't, because probably if you're listening to Urban View, you probably do this on a regular basis anyway. But I just want us to take the time to, while we are challenging those in different structures, to recognize people who are busting their behind, who have great artistry, who are doing tremendous work, We have to make sure that we value the spaces that come from our community as well. And that's not only award shows, like I said, but that's also our organizations, our community leaders, our young people especially. You want them to see value in doing work for their own community amongst their own people. And so we need to celebrate that. And yes, There is some value for some people to challenge those outside of our community to recognize our talents. That ain't my ministry. (laughs) But for somebody, it is their ministry to continue to challenge that structure. But we have to recognize the people within our own community and particularly our young people who need that base, that uh, self-esteem, that boost of self-esteem that should come from their own families, from their own communities. So we are still in the middle of Black History Month. This is also a good time to highlight Black history and not just bringing out Sister Harriet and Brother Malcolm and Brother Martin. You know, we obviously have our huge civil rights leaders and others that we all know the names of. But just as I share here in Brooklyn, I challenge people to share Brooklyn Black history. So where you are, highlight the Black history that exists in your family, the Black history that exists in your neighborhood, in your town, in your city, in your state, right? We want to make sure that we all lift up the stories of our people who are doing or have done amazing things and also to be able to teach our young people that the people that we call on as ancestors, the people that we say are our heroes and sheroes, our leaders, are not just people that you know the larger world knows because they achieved a certain status or a certain national or international name. You want them to be able to point to members of their own family members of their own community so that they can see that they can also do things that are historic so that it's not so far of a reach, right, to grab onto, right? Like, I'm not trying to be, you know, like Harriet Tubman. I can't possibly be like Malcolm X, you know, but if you are telling stories about Uncle John, if you're telling stories about Arnestine, if you're telling stories about Grandma Isola, right? Lifting up those names and what they were involved in and what they've done. And then also what happened locally in your community, what happened locally in your state, that makes it more reachable. It also gives families a sense of pride, young people a sense of pride. It's Black History Month, so I've been going to schools and talking to young people about the NAACP, about civil rights history, 
And, you know, I'm still amazed that for a number of parents, for a number of people, they have left it up to our schools to teach our children about themselves, to teach them their history. And there are so many of our young people that I see their eyes light up when I talk to them about certain movements, certain things that happen in their community or from their people. And it shouldn't be some stranger that is, you know, giving a good speech or doing a great workshop that they hear for the first time about their history, about their identity, about their ethnicity, about the history of their people, of their community, or even their town. It should come from us. It should come from the place they call home, from the people they call family. And so while, yes, there are institutions, you know, who have you know, co-opted Black History Month and people trying to sell us a whole bunch of trash, they're trying to sell us T-shirts with Black History Month on it and headbands and, you know, all kinds of stuff. But I implore you to use this time to talk about your own family's history to have a conversation with the young people in your purview, whether they live in your household, your nieces, your nephews, your grandkids, or ever, and ask them what do they think about how do they identify themselves and, you know, why is that? You know, I ask that question and some kids don't identify themselves as Black, you know, and ask the question why. Like, and some of it is because they have a negative connotation with it. But some people, because they want to honor, you know, all the various ethnicities that they are and they talk about that. Right. So use this as an opportunity to talk amongst yourselves as family, to talk amongst yourselves as community, to talk amongst yourself as a faith based community. What is your church doing for Black History Month? Are they talking about how the congregation has shifted and changed because of migration? you know, where people came from? Are you from the South, the Midwest? Is everybody been up here in the North, right? Like those are the kinds of stories that we will lose if we do not have those conversations amongst ourselves. So I know that wasn't about paid family leave, but given all of the talks and workshops that I'm giving over this month and seeing this, I wanted to speak to you and give you that challenge of civic action, of talking about your own family's history, or your local Black history. And this ain't just for Black folks. This is for white folks too. Talk about your history as a family. And if it's, you know, not so good, it's important to talk about that too and to talk about how the family has changed and how the uh, family has evolved and grown from where it used to be. So thank you so much for listening to Sunday Civics. I really, really do appreciate it. And I appreciate each and every one of you that have shared and congratulated us about the nomination. Looking forward to hopefully we bring home that win. And I look forward to celebrating, continuing to celebrate Black History Month with all of you. See you next Sunday. Sunday.